for my birthday, a friend was kind enough to write in my card that I was over 34 million minutes old. Thankfully, his playful sarcasm didn't come with a cake and candles, but it did get me thinking about the minutes in my life that mattered most. How many of them were planned for and how many occurred because of circumstance or chance? I also reflected on my journey as a podcast host and some of the extraordinary people that I've chatted with and the moments that mattered most to them. Chris Hadfield had his entire life laddering up to the moment where he blasted into space. In 45 seconds, we went through the speed of sound, going straight up, and the violence of it is kind of like nothing you've ever experienced. Penny Olasiak and Brooke Henderson competing to be the best in the world and succeeding. W. Mitchell having the gas tank of his motorcycle explode in his crash and his life changed forever after. Or Harry Connick Jr. turning a single day gig for Rob Reiner and his movie When Harry Met Sally into the soundtrack where he suddenly became one of the most well-regarded and well-known artists in the world. I, I love the idea of wonder and excitement and spontaneity and unpredictability. I just feel a desire to communicate. My entire library, I guess, is based on people who turn their moments, some unplanned and some planned, to the lifetime opportunity. The story that I'm gonna to share today had three moments that were life-changing. The first is with a functionally illiterate 15-year-old who grew up in Bushwick, New York, a ghetto, but in that day and in that moment, he happened to be in the right place at the right time. The second life-changing event happened when that young man, now living in Canada and at a book fair, buys a book called 16th Round. It's the autobiography of Reuben Hurricane Carter, the boxer that was falsely accused of murder. The third is when Reuben Hurricane Carter is released from prison and the catalyst, the reason why, is this once 15-year-old functionally literate kid from the ghetto. His name is Lesra Martin. I hope to do justice to his story and all that led to this happy ending. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Lesra Martin, an American-Canadian lawyer, motivational speaker, and writer he's perhaps best known for helping to bring about the release of former boxer Reuben the Hurricane Carter. Here comes the story of the hurricane The many authorities came to blame For something that he never done I knew that I was innocent. I knew that I was not in prison for murder. I knew that. Lester, before we get into what you're arguably most known for is this ferocious, tenacious individual that turned a nightmare into a dream, which is getting Reuben Hurricane Carter out of prison. I want to just go back to your early days, because I think people really have to understand where you came from and how, within those circumstances, you became this warrior. What I understand, your father was a successful singer, but a combination of smoking and drinking took its toll, series of family misfortunes. And you went from kind of this middle-class life in Queens to surrendering to poverty, welfare, and living this dangerous sort of nightmare streets of Bushwick. How old mm-hmm. were you when this happened in your life that you went from the world was possible to suddenly feeling impossible? I, I was six years old, Tony, you know, uh, when when the world started to, to change and we moved from a middle-class neighborhood in Queens to um, a, a ghetto community uh, in, in, in Bushwick. Can you frame how different your life was? I mean, was it sudden or was it just over time you realized that 
what I used to have, I might not have again. Uh, it was sudden. It was sudden because, see, my dad, uh, when he uh, was seeing and, you know, living um, you know, a good life, you know, um, but, but, you know, got caught up with the drinking and smoking of that, of that famous world, it was a little bit of a transition into uh, a smaller home. Uh, and I can remember to this day, the, the still the fun that we were having, the Christmas parties that we were having, the blue carpet that was that was on the floor, uh, the friends that would come over and play basketball with my dad and I would play basketball with them. And, you know, I, I was I was a young boy uh, living a good you know, childhood, so to speak, even after he stopped seeing for a period of time. But then one day we uh, were told we were moving. And that was when I was six and, and, and we moved. And I remember riding uh, down this uh, street in this neighborhood that was just dilapidated. And my dad was pointing out uh, where it was that we were going to, uh, what, what building we were going to move into. And I just remember thinking, wow, um, life has just suddenly changed. And you're six years old, but you're also the second oldest. It wasn't that long after that you started to say, I had to do my part to make ends meet. Yeah, I, I, I was the second oldest male. You're quite right. Uh, so all of a sudden, uh, my dad had lost uh, his job. Um, he was working in a, in a glass factory, lost his job. That's when that move took place. And uh, and all of a sudden we were thinking, OK, well, how are we even going to 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 eat? And so I started getting odd jobs, you know, working for, you know, uh, a, a fellow who uh, would let me help him in a bar. Uh, I would pack groceries at a grocery store um, a few blocks away from my home, the associated grocery store. Uh, and I pack bags. People give me quarters and dimes. By the end of the day, uh, I could buy a meal for the family. Wow. And, and Hollywood often glorifies the ghetto, you know, the tension, the, the propensity for crime, the gangs, the, the, the sounds. You live there. Tell me what it's like to even go two blocks to go to that grocery store in that kind of environment. That was a dangerous two block walk. Um, and uh, I discovered pretty quickly that uh, you uh, may not make it to your destination uh, without being accosted, robbed, uh, picked on, beat up, um, you know. And so one of the things that I started doing was I would get up way earlier than, <laughs> than, than, than the gang members typically got up and, and I'd get to my destination uh, early, safely uh, get into the store. The way back home was always more treacherous because they were up by then. The gang members were up and the streets were alive. And uh, and so you just try to make yourself as small as you can to get yourself home. And how did your parents come to terms with it? I mean, they must have felt immense guilt knowing that they had they put their family into a situation where you're thinking your steps just in terms of finding a way to be safe. How, how do they deal with it? They put themselves out of their misery, essentially. You know, um, unfortunately, uh, drinking and smoking uh, got the better of them and they uh, just became more and more severe uh, abusive uh, alcoholics. And uh, so I think the only way they could deal with that guilt was by just not being able to face the misery of it. And so the interesting thing about you, that even back then, you talk about you found a way uh, in between these part-time jobs and, and trying to sneak your way to different points. You attended school, you came third in your class, but tested later on, you were functionally illiterate. 
you know, that's the unfortunate part about ghetto life um, is the education system. Uh, it's inferior at the, at the end of the day. Uh, and so you're right. I mean, I graduated with the third highest mark in my Brooklyn English class of 40 students. And yet when I came to Canada, I couldn't read or write beyond a grade two level. It happened because at the end of the day, the school system uh, is failing that community. My teacher literally would sit at the head of the table um, ahead of the class, read the newspaper, kids would play cards, play tic-tac-toe, um, and you were literally passed uh, from grade to grade without any idea how to, how to read or how to write if you did not create a disturbance in that classroom. I mean, that goes on to this day. And you talked about being the second oldest boy. Your oldest brother finds himself on a path towards gang and gang life. How did you escape that? Uh, he basically um, uh, protected uh, the family. Uh, once he became a gang member, uh, then um, he was afforded the protection of, uh, of the rest of the gang. And therefore our family, my brothers and my sisters, uh, were considered a no-go zone uh, to uh, other gang members without repercussions. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. This is Chatter That Matters. When we come back, Lester Martin meets a group of Canadians by chance and by choice. He chooses to change his life. No, no hopes, no, no dreams. That was a direct reflection of the environment that he grew up in. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I was at that time battling a bad image of myself, battling an image that I was stupid, that I couldn't be educated, that I couldn't possibly succeed. And for him to succeed under those circumstances in which he did and to never be broken despite so many years in prison made me realize, you know, well, I can certainly do this. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest is Lester Martin. The best writers in Hollywood would be challenged to imagine a story that begins with a family sliding into poverty, a kid bagging groceries, sweeping out bars to make ends meet, third highest in his class, but functionally illiterate. And then a single moment that would impact his life and the life of the falsely accused Reuben Hurricane Carter happens. In summer of 79, you take advantage of a New York City program to hire inner city youth you find yourself working as a gopher fetching this and that, but in a pretty cool place, an environmental lab. How did that make you feel? It made me feel proud, Tony. I mean, and, you know, really, because um, I'm 14 years old. I am uh, dead in life in a, in, in a ghetto. That summer, there was a blackout uh, in uh, New York City, and there was a lot of looting and rioting going on in the in, in the communities. And so the government decided with this Make Fair program that it would give young kids something else to focus on. And I took advantage of this program. And fortunately, um, I was placed in this lab in Queens uh, where I would meet a group of Torontonians that would literally change my life. No expectations of himself no expectations of anybody he knew, his family, friends. But he was incredibly bright. He was unbelievably curious. He would constantly be asking questions about this or that. So tell us what happened that day and, and why did you stand out with all the many people they must have run into? I often wonder, 
uh, that myself, Tony. But, you know, I was a pretty outgoing, precocious kind of guy. And despite how hard my my life was, I really um, enjoyed people and I enjoyed uh, experiences, different things. In this group of Torontonians, uh, there's actually three of them, Lisa, Sam and, and Terry. And so I started playing jokes uh, on them, too. But I had noticed that um, one of them, Lisa, was always reading a book and she wasn't really all that interested in playing the games with me. And so I remember one day asking her, you know, hey, Lisa, Lisa, you know, how come you never partake in all these jokes and things I'm playing on people? And she says, oh, because I'm engaged in this book reading. And so she started to read uh, this. She goes, this is a book that you might find interesting. And she read me a chapter. The book was um, Man, Child in the Promised Land by Claude Brown. Never forget it. Because essentially, he was raised in a ghetto Harlem, um, slept in stairwells, uh, went to law school, and became um, a writer um, as well. In a way, that was a duplicate of my life. So amazing. Yeah, I, I know, right? And so I wanted her to read more to me. And so every day over the lunch hour, she would go back to the point where she was reading. She was way ahead uh, in the book, but she'd go back to my point and continue this. And we finished that book over the course of lunch uh, dates. And then sometimes dinner dates, they take me to dinner. And I, and I just want, I was, I was devouring this story. These three Torontonians make an offer to say, come to Toronto, join our family. And your parents weren't sure about letting you go because you were a tight family. But maybe the, your mom's favorite expression, God works in mysterious ways, <laughs> was, yeah. was, was really where she get, they gave you permission to say, go off with these strangers. It must have been a tough decision for them. I'm a parent. You know, I have two beautiful uh, daughters uh, in their teens, now 17 and, and 19 years old. I couldn't imagine how difficult a decision it was for my parents until I had my own kids uh, to uh, allow me to go uh, in the first place. And I remember that day very, very well. The Canadians had come over uh, to the house, little apartment that we lived in, and my mom and dad were sitting on the couch and uh, they asked. My mother was so heartbroken that she literally hopped up left the room. And as she left the room, she goes, Earl, my dad, I can't make that decision. You have to make that decision. And she left. When you reflect on that, it was the best thing that she could do was simply remove herself from the equation because she knew that she wouldn't be able to say yes. So she did the next best thing, which was, I'm not going to get in the way of this. You know, she was heartbroken. She was absolutely heartbroken. So my dad, he said one thing to me, you can go if you want. So you move up to Toronto and there's so many ways this group of people are described. Commune, hippies, inventors. Give us a real, because you're there. What was it like to walk into this home and what was this home? Um, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it was a group of um, university students who, you know, they graduated together. University of Toronto essentially uh, started uh, living together communally. You go up there and from what I understand, you come back for a visit and your younger brother, Elston, questions why you had to leave why he has to now shoulder a lot of what you carried for the family. That must have made you feel very confused, conflicted, and guilty even, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, you know, and I don't know about ever really truly come to terms uh, with that uh, because there's part of me that still suffers from the only thing I can call it is sort of survivor's guilt. You know, Elson was just such a, he was 
couple years younger than me, uh, a real peaceful soul. Um, he was a lot like me in the sense that he was very responsible. He was so gentle, but one day he was literally going to help um, one of my nieces. He uh, moved the wrong way and someone thought that he was moving uh, to, you know, pull a gun out on him or something like that. And they literally just shot him and then he died, you know? Wow. And so, I mean, that, you know, uh, I carry that with me uh, in ways that, um, it's hard. Man. I have to believe, though, he's with you every day and watching you and going, yeah. that's the older brother that I I loved when he was home. And he must be so proud looking down at you. That's a tough place to be. I want to take you back to Toronto, though. You're functionally illiterate. you got a lot of catching up to do. because when, yeah, yeah. when you're 15 years old, there's emotional scars, there's baggage, there's you feel like you're an imposter, an imposer. I mean, how did you overcome all of those scars? Learn how to read and write and eventually get your law degree. Emotional baggage is a difficult battle, a journey to go to get through. When I got to Toronto, my life suddenly was miraculously different. Um, there was a part of me that thought, that feared that it would just be taken away. And, you know, that it was all of, all of joke that, you know, all of a sudden you're given everything, but then you're just going to be like psych. And so I did everything in my power, Tony, to sabotage the opportunities that were put in front of me, man, you know, and this went on for about a year, you know, Tony, where I would fight these uh, Canadians. And then one day I remember Lisa said to me, you know, Lesra, after I, I had a sort of temper tantrum in the store, um, she said, uh, you, you're just doing everything in your power to make us just not want to love you and, and send you back. And she goes, but guess what? We understand what you're going through and we're not going to send you back. And at some point, it, it really just crystallized for me that they actually really did mean to give me this opportunity and they weren't simply going to gonna take it back. And the moment I had that realization, I, I was able to begin to commit my heart to this opportunity, things began to change. You know, the other thing you picked up on was that huge journey from illiteracy, from being, you know, reading on a grade two level to being taught properly. When I had my reading level tested and they realized that here I am, you know, 15 years old, I would be put back into grade two. And, they, and the Canadians said, we can't do that. And so they decided that they were going to privately tutor me and teach me. And I went from grade two to grade 13 in two years. Wow. And it was because I literally would start school eight in the morning and we'd go to eight at night. At some point in time, my tutor would come in and say, okay, Leslie, now time for the books to go down. But learning is a beautiful thing because when you're properly learning, it's exciting. It's a, you know, you get this kind of adrenaline rush. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the process. And fortunately, my tutor probably uh, was smart to say, okay, eight o'clock, it's, <laughs> it's time to set the books down. But, you know, but that, that two years, man, two years. Imagine how many Lesser Martins are living in the ghettos right now that if you could just give them that seed, water, trust, comfort would, would soar the way you did. I mean, you just think about how many people we leave behind. When we come back, we're gonna talk about, and I just want you to imagine Lesser Martin now scampering through a book fair, looking at different bins for books to buy. And he stumbles upon a book, uh, it's an autobiography called The 16th Round. It's about Reuben Hurricane Carter. Uh, we can't get into the entire story, but he wanted it. Somebody picked it up, follows the person around, gets hold of this book. And this book not only changes Lester Martin's life, 
it changed Hurricane Carter's path. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. Lesnar wanted to write him a letter. Just basically to say, I read your book, there's people out here thinking about you, hang in there kind of thing. And uh, Lesnar wrote him a letter. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The many authorities came to blame for something that he never done. His warmth arrived. His brilliance arrived. His intelligence arrived. His understanding arrived and pierced these walls and pierced the coldness of my heart. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Lester Martin. If you're just joining the show, grew up in middle class, a family slipped into the ghetto with his substance abuse with his parents. Working in a lab, some Canadians just fall in love with his spark and his imagination, his creativity, convinced the parents to... Uh, Move him to uh, Toronto. He goes from uh, grade two literacy to uh, grade 13 in two years. And we're just at the point in the story where last year you had a book fair and something or other makes you, there must be what, 10,000, 100,000 books at this book fair? <laughs> yes. And something draws you to the 16th round. So take us to that point of your journey. One of the things that Canadians did that was really, really clever was that they surrounded me with books and words all the time, you know? And so they took me to this book fair uh, held down on the waterfront every year uh, in Toronto. And just to make me a little bit uh, less afraid of, of books, you know, because uh, when you're, when you can't read or write, you, you kind of think you're stupid, right? And so, and so they were easy, slowly easing me into this uh, world of books. I just happened to see uh, the cover of, of Ruben's book, The 16th Round, big, strong, bald-headed Black man on there, and it just resembled uh, a symbol of strength to me. And so that book captured my attention. And I, but I remember following this man everywhere he went. We picked the book up before I did, and eventually he discarded that book after I'd been following him for well over an hour. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> you know? And uh, and so I got this book. And when I finally had agreed to meet up with the Canadians at a certain point, um, uh, they came with carts of books. And I come with just this one book. And they were like, oh, excited. Oh, he found the book. He found the book. You know? <laughs> and uh, so that was the book. Honestly, that was the book that would literally change uh, my life. A lot like the Claude Brown book changed my life. Uh, this book, The 16th Round, um, uh, would change my life because that book about Reuben Hurricane Carter started me on my education journey. You read this book, and as he called it, it was a message in a bottle. He wrote this book to hope that someday somebody would read the book and reach out and help him. Because if you know the story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, falsely accused, twice they tried to overturn it, twice he was beaten back. He felt his life was now going to be one where he would be in prison for many, many years. Yes. And you read his book and you write him a letter. But when I saw the interview of him, he said, I, I was in such a mental state. Reuben Carter was in such a mental state. He didn't even bother opening letters. Not only did he open your letter, he replied to it. Why do you think, once again, 
Lester Martin gets picked out of the crowd. And, and, <laughs> I never thought and, of it that way. But. And, and th- this, this magic that surrounds you. Did you guys ever talk about why your letter stood out? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've heard him tell stories about that um, uh, because, you know, Ruben often said to me, you know, when he was given piles and piles of mail, the fans wrote to him all the time. He goes, for some reason, every single time they would add mail to his in his cell, my letter would continue to push out of the pot. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, and um, that, that, that was him saying that, not me, you know. Um, but just a point uh, that I want to make clear, you know, about Ruben Carter's book, The 16th Round. It was the first book that I struggled, to, that I started to read and the Canadians had to help me through it. And so we would read this book together and they literally taught me to read because my fascination in Ruben's, uh, with Ruben's story. What I'm fascinated by is you, you, you want to keep going because a lot of times when you're learning to read, you get so frustrated because the word bridge doesn't come out right. You know, and every, <laughs> every second or third word, people are trying to yeah. help you through it. But yeah. with, even in spite of all of that, he was still talking to you through that book, wasn't he? He, he was talking to me, you know, because of the struggles uh, that he had gone through, the struggles that he'd overcome. You know, the fact that you could take a man, um, uh, you know, I, you remember Bob Dylan's song, you know, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, the hurricane, you know, you can't turn a man into a mouse. You know, at the end of the day, uh, th- that's exactly what happened with, with Ruben, where he said simply, I did not do this. I'm never going to say I did this. You can lock me away in jail all you want. But the reality is, I did not do this, and I'm not ever going to say I did it when I didn't. Yes, that's the story of the hurricane, but it won't be over till they clear his name. Give him back the time he's done. And so he was a man, and I was moved by that. You decide you're going to go visit him in prison. He hasn't seen anybody in five years. And he describes in one interview that he just wasn't mentally prepared anymore. He didn't want to be let down anymore. You must have been so scared going into that prison because that's not a place anybody wants to go in, especially in your case, because your older brother had spent a lot of time incarcerated. That's correct. And, and Tony, you know, I was actually petrified going into that prison. Now, you know, just like everything else that the Canadians did with me, they used that journey from Toronto to uh, uh, Trenton, New Jersey, where I went to visit him um, as a learning experience. So they said, look, you can do this. But I remember walking into that prison in the steel bars and the concrete walls and, 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 and the reality of that life hit me hard because my oldest brother uh, had spent many, many years uh, of his life uh, in prison and I knew how violent the place could be. And so I stepped in there and I was absolutely petrified and I was shaking, shaking, shaking like a leaf, you know, because I'm you know, 15, 16 years old. And, um, um, and then this man who I didn't even recognize uh, because he's he grown his hair out and things like that. He's looking all soft and gentle, you know, quiet whisper uh, said, you know, you must be Lesra. And he was uh, slowly realizing that I was shaking and I was scared. And he uh, slowly began to uh, embrace me and hug me and just whisper in my ear and tell me, you're safe, you're safe. You know, everything's going to be just fine. Right. And, um, and I'm the first visitor he had in five years, you know, can you, you know, uh, and he had to, he had to help me. <laughs> What an incredible story. And then you come back and I guess your family in Toronto, your Yodas, your Merlins, your fairy godmothers decide that they want to get involved with you and saying, what can we do to help Reuben Hurricane Carter? And that includes, I guess you guys started going to see him every month. 
That's correct. I mean, I think they were roped into this thing uh, because um, once I went to visit Ruben, I wanted to learn more and more and more about him. And so literally um, Sam, one of the Canadians, would take me to the library and uh, we would you know, do some research. He would teach me literally how to read and write with transcripts, sorry, with uh, microfiche, you know, the old days where you, uh, you put the microfiche in there and you, you get the information, article that you want. The more research we did, the more the whole family um, wanted to learn about and see and, and see Ruben. And so you're right. We took trips down there every month to see him and uh, just share with him. And, and before we knew it, we found ourselves wanting to help his lawyers with their case. And so we approached them as well. How did this manifest itself into even convincing uh, the courts that it said no twice that this was something that was there's another kick at the can? I mean, this is <laughs> these, these odds are not good odds. Not good odds at all. And in fact, um, you know, we it initially had some resistance from Ruben's lawyers as well. Um, when we first approached him in New York, they took the meeting, but they basically said, you know, we're not convinced, guys, that uh, you, you guys will stick around because we've had lots of people over the course of years offer help, but then they just become disheartened and, and they're gone. We eventually convinced them that very day to allow us to go into this vault of a room where they kept all of Ruben's uh, court documents and transcripts, and uh, they allowed us to make copies. And uh, we took those copies out and we began to create a you know, chronology of all of the events that had taken place in both trials. Ruben had a trial originally in 1966 and then one in 1976. In the end, we uh, had a true chronology of things. We actually even began to conduct an investigation for the first time uh, in his case years later, a real true uh, investigation where we found the car, the type of car that, he, that you know, the witnesses claimed he was using. And in fact, Ruben's car was slightly different than that. And so over time, we began to put this picture together and the lawyers uh, began to trust us and would visit us and work with us uh, more and more often. They had a picture of the, of the case that they'd never had before either. Tony Chapman, this is Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. When we come back, Lester Martin wants to break down those prison bars to set Hurricane Carter free. My dear, beautiful friends, how can I ever thank you for what you have given me? For the first time in close to 44 years, I can truly say that I trust somebody. I trust you. And without reservations, without doubt, and without trying to condition it in any way. And for me, that is indeed a miracle. Bless you for it. I'll be talking to you soon. With all my love, Ruben. I'm overwhelmed and overpowered and just so emotionally caught up in this incredible story of Lester Martin, Escapes the Ghetto, a life that could easily have been one of crime and carcination. So a series of incredible events, he decides that his mission, and I would say Hurricane Carter's mission, and this family of Canadians that have not only just adopted them, but embraced them, decide that they're all in it together and that Hurricane Carter needs to be set free. So in 1984, I mean, this is many years later, and Hurricane Carter has one final shot, either be a victor or be knocked out in front of a federal mm -hmm. court. And, and it was an all or nothing. And mm -hmm. he went after it. 
And mm-hmm. what happened? <laughs> we got it all, you know, uh, we got free. Carter arrived in federal court in Newark sporting a full head of hair. Over the past 19 years, he's chosen to present a bald head to the world. You couldn't imagine what it feels like to be under that kind of indictment and conviction and then the next moment you're free not to become too sort of esoteric about things but at some point in time faith plays a part and it's on your side and you have to believe in the magic of of that and i think ruben began to have renewed faith and that's essentially i think what carried him to the finish line because he had actually given up hope you know and without hope I don't think you can achieve anything, right? And so once we revived his hope, Ruben was able to really talk about all of the events that took place in this case, why he believed he was originally convicted in the first instance, where things went wrong, the details of that only he knew uh, that could free him. Um, but he had to have his hope renewed in order to get there. Well, Lester, let's turn it back to you. You kind of go from grade two to grade 13 in two years, then you get your undergraduate degree in anthropology and your law degree, you've done so much. Part of what you're doing now is you're trying to be a force of positive change to help other people like you were helped. So you've been on Oprah, you've addressed the United Nations, you're working to eradicate illiteracy. If you had to be remembered for one thing in your life. You know, it's, I've never actually thought about that question, Tony. Immediately, my, my two daughters come to mind. If I had to be remembered for one thing, I'd want to be um, the best parent uh, ever. Just recently this summer, I also started a scholarship uh, at the University of Toronto uh, called the Leisure Martin Changemaker uh, Award. Uh, and it's because the Torontonians literally invested in my life because of the investment that they made financially and emotionally. They gave me a real opportunity to learn. And with that learning, my life changed. Um, by this you know, new scholarship, I hope that someone can take it and run with it. You're an incredible speaker as well. And you talk about putting yourself in the picture. I mean, essentially, it means if you, uh, you have to begin to imagine that um, if you want an outcome, if you imagine the best, then that outcome uh, can happen. And so I visualize, you know, I put myself in, in the picture by, by literally uh, imagining uh, that uh, I'm there. We have the magic that it takes. We have the will that it takes. We have the human spirit that it takes uh, to get us through hurdles and obstacles and difficulties and adversities in life. But unless you can get out of your way, then you, you can't get there. So the second one that you often talk about, it sounds like it's an extension of that is erase your voice of doubt. When I was given this opportunity and the efforts that I made to sabotage that opportunity, I was full of self-doubt. Uh, I began to believe that I couldn't, re- could never learn to read or never learn to write, that I'd never amount to much in life. There was so many hurdles and obstacles from my past that I was, you know, allowing to define uh, my present. And you can't get there when you, when you do that. And the final one is, and it's interesting because of everything you talk about being a wonderful parent and husband and everything that you're family in Toronto, the love your parents had, only you can make you happy. I think you know a lot more about me than I realized, Tony. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. The greatest enemy that we face is, is always ourselves, always the self-doubt uh, that we have. I don't care how successful uh, people uh, might be. 
if your brain gets in your way, your heart gets in your way, and your fear gets in your way, uh, then uh, then then you stumble, right? And so you, you're quite right. And I just want to take you back just for a moment to where that um, idea of only you can make you happy came from. I was at a place in my life where I was going from Toronto uh, to uh, do my master's degree in, uh, in at the at uh, Dalhousie University, and my mom had passed that year. And uh, I was so busy uh, trying to prepare myself to get to uh, into this master's program that I literally um, didn't allow myself to grieve um, until I was on that journey, driving twelve hours from Toronto to. Nova Scotia. And I stopped at this place called Magic Mountain, New Brunswick. And on the wall was um, a plaque as I was leaving the, um, the store, this um, like souvenir store. And it said, only you can make yourself happy. Smile. And I have never forgotten it. Never, ever forgot it. Because the emotional state that I was in and, and you know, driving, thinking about my mom, crying, pulling over for the first time because I was grieving. Uh, and, uh, and I got through that moment. And then I went into the souvenir store and, uh, and I've carried that with me ever since. So Lester, I always end my journey by sharing the three things I take away that I will continue to think about. And the first is when you said, with hope, you can achieve anything. And I think that's such powerful advice the second one is where you talk about putting yourself in the picture and really seeing yourself where you want to be and, and believing it and erasing the self-doubt and saying you have permission to go for it. And the final thing is when you talk about the magic of faith, and I think of all the moments that happened in your life, you could call it guided by faith. You could call it only you can make yourself happy, <laughs> but whatever, whatever that is, your mom named you after Esther the prophet, Lazarus, who rose from the dead. And I have to tell you, I think she picked the perfect name. <laughs> uh, you, are, you are an incredible human being, and I am so deeply honored that you uh, found the time to share your story with me on Chatter That Matters. Uh, Tony, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And thanks for inviting me. RBC is my presenting sponsor, and it's easy to just frame them as a bank. But over the past year, I've come to really appreciate how much they matter to everyday Canadians and to Canada beyond financial services. No matter what the subject matter of my episode, diversity, inclusion, science, aspiring artists, aspiring musicians, small business, RBC is investing to make the fabric of our country stronger. Take this episode. Imagine being Lester Martin, age six, his life's turned upside down. He's now in a world where he sees fear and uncertainty and insecurity with his parents. I have to believe that there's millions of households in Canada feeling the same way because of this pandemic. And it's taking a heavy toll on the mental health of youth. So here's a shout out to my presenting sponsor, RBC, because they're investing in more than 150 youth mental health organizations across the country. They're one of the largest supporters of youth mental well-being resources in Canada. And they're not just giving dollars, they're bringing their people, their passion, their expertise. They're moving these programs virtually so that more Canadian youth can get the help that they need. Here's to RBC and the many other organizations and individuals doing their part to make Canada a better place to live.
Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.